Hi, everybody. It's James Lilacs, and you know it's getting hot in this madcap presidential summer. But we're keeping it cool at Ricochet.com, where it's meaningful and civil. And you can join us for free at Ricochet.com slash join. We'll give you a free month to get you started. And after that, a membership is just a few bucks a month, and it's money well spent to stay sane and sharp in this cycle. Ricochet.com slash join to get your first 30 days for free. From PowerlineBlog.com, this is Powerline with John Hinderocker, Scott Johnson, Paul Mirengoff, and Stephen Hayward. Welcome to the Powerline Show. Today we've got me, John Hinderocker, Steve Hayward, and Scott Johnson getting together the day after the opening night of the uh, Democratic National Convention. And um, it was uh, it was quite a day. It started in the morning with... Uh, with uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz being booed when she tried to address her own Florida delegation <laughs> at the uh, at the convention, um, and it kind of went downhill from there with uh, uh, Bernie protesters in the streets uh, carrying signs saying things like uh, "Indict Hillary," and um, and then we had the speeches last night, and and the theme of the evening was it's time to unite behind Hillary Clinton, whether you like it or not. <laughs> she is the nominee. And so we had uh, uh, Michelle Obama, who has decided after seven and a half years in the White House that she likes America after all. It's a, it's a great it's a great country. Uh, I, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad she's changed her mind about us. Uh, and then we had um, Elizabeth Warren, who just went hysterical on um, on Donald Trump. I mean, you know, it's it's really funny to me, Steve, how. Um, the Democrats are always talking about the hate speech, you know, hate speech from Donald Trump, all the hate. Well, you want to see some hate. Holy mackerel. You know, I think some of her hysteria was was the fact that you may not have picked up very well watching on television. She was being heckled. You know, apparently people were chanting, we trusted you, meaning the Berniacs, who were disappointed that she was falling in line behind Hillary so easily. So I actually think that Elizabeth Warren, who's used to being adored by crowds, was rattled. Uh, by the heckling she was receiving. And so what, what you do in a situation like that, you just shout louder. And then, of course, she was followed by the headliner of the evening, Bernie Sanders. Um, and here again, you know, it's so funny to me, Steve, the, the, as you have pointed out, um, the uh, uh, so-called mainstream analysts writing about the Republican convention and especially about Donald Trump's acceptance speech, the word they all used was dark. It was a it was a dark speech, a, a, a dark convention. Well, you are dark, man. Oh, man, Bernie Sanders. Uh, I was ready to slip my wrist by the time he he got done describing the condition of our economy. And of course, what's funny about that is you keep sitting there and as he's and he's describing all these horrors: forty seven million in poverty, the greatest inequality of income and wealth in American history, or at least back to nineteen twenty eight. You're sitting there thinking, gosh, has anybody told Barack about this? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I kept wondering that too. Does, does Barack Obama not know about uh, the rigged system? You know, I think the most interesting thing about uh, about the Sanders speech was not so much the speech itself but the reception he got. You would have thought he was the nominee. I, I wish I'd run a stopwatch and maybe we should go back and watch it on YouTube and tape it. My hunch is uh, come Hillary's speech Thursday night – uh, there will probably be prolonged applause for her. I'll bet the campaign uh, convention managers will actually whip the crowd to have them cheering for her longer. 
Because my hunch is if you didn't have that happen, I'll bet that she wouldn't get half the enthusiasm expressed that you saw Sanders get last night. Well, she is not going to get the kind of rapturous reception that Sanders got and probably not the reception that Elizabeth Warren got. Right. Um, about 45 percent, something like that, of the delegates to the Democratic Convention are, are Sanders delegates. And it may be that by Thursday, uh, the, the uh, DNC will have been able to close the deal and they will be fully on board with uh, enthusiastically supporting Hillary. But I doubt it. Uh, I think a lot of them are still going to be very upset about the emails that have come out, the, the information that has come out about how Debbie Wasserman Schultz and others at the Democratic National Committee actively conspired uh, to try to hand the nomination to Hillary Clinton exactly – Exactly, as Bernie Sanders had been complaining throughout the process. Right. Well, now, speaking of conspiring, how's that for an awkward transition? <laughs> I think we should tell our listeners that we actually have a sponsor for the Powerline show, uh, a brand-new sponsor. You may have heard of them. It's The Great Courses Plus. You may have heard about them on other Ricochet podcasts, and maybe you've heard of The Great Courses, but The Great Courses Plus is a new service. It's their video service. They give you an unlimited access to over 7,000 fascinating video lectures for your TV, your laptop, your tablet, even your smartphone if you're riding mass transit. Uh, the one that uh, they're especially proud of and that I've been enjoying lately is Mr. Lincoln, The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Alan Gelzo of Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. Uh, I know Alan slightly. I think he is the preeminent interpreter of Lincoln today. I mean, there are other fine Lincoln authors, but he's really the best, I think. So if you listen to Alan's lectures on Lincoln or, or watch them, uh, you'll get the lectures on Lincoln as a young man, his early influences, especially the great Whig politician Henry Clay. Uh, the, the Clay-Lincoln connection is one that's been ignored by an awful lot of historians. You get uh, Lincoln's understanding of religion and faith, uh, and you will get uh, Alan's uh, uh, account of his famous debates with Stephen Douglas in the 1858 Senate campaign, maybe the greatest debates in all of human history that actually took place, unlike the ones of Thucydides that are kind of made up. So we've got a special offer for listeners of the Powerline show. If you sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash ricochet, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash ricochet, you'll immediately get one month free to start watching as many lectures as you want. So if you're not already into the life of Abraham Lincoln or want something else, there are 7,000 other lectures to choose from. History, business, cooking, playing chess, even how to speak Spanish. And as I said, you can watch these anytime using your TV, laptop, tablet, and smartphone. So to repeat, to start your free trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash ricochet. And we thank The Great Courses Plus for joining Powerline Podcast as a sponsor. Well, thanks to them. We're delighted to have a sponsor. Um, well, let's go back, uh, Steve and Scott, to talking about the Democratic Convention and, and, and where it goes from here. And, and I suppose it's a truism that one of the principal purposes of, of any uh, political convention or almost every uh, political convention is to produce uh, unity. Uh, it, it goes with the territory that if you've had a primary battle – uh, people get mad at each other, and, and you know, it seems like people never get quite as angry at, at the at, at the other side as they do <laughs> at people on their own side. Isn't that right, Steve? That sure is. Right. Uh, there's something about internecine warfare that is particularly uh, destructive, and so I think one of the basic functions of a, of a convention is to is to bring people together and to put the primary season uh, behind uh, the party. 
and to get everybody up on stage on the last night all holding hands and proclaiming unity and that they're going to go forward and slay the uh, the real opposition, which is the other party. And I guess I guess the de- from the Democrat standpoint, if after four days that happens, they really have uh, won over the uh, Bernieites, and the party really is united behind uh, behind Hillary Clinton, uh, notwithstanding the early stumbles. I think they will consider that to have been a, a big success. Well, I don't, you know, the, the the Sanders people appear to be really mad. I mean, they were wearing tape across their mouths last night, saying "silence" by the DNC. Is it too optimistic to think we might be repeating Chicago 1968? Uh, Scott, uh, you usually have a gloomy point of view. What do you think of all this? My my guess would be that you're way too optimistic, John. I think there's going to be a beautiful coming together in the course of this uh, convention and that the Democrats will rally uh, behind Hillary. But I'm not sure about that. Uh, there are a lot of nuts in that party. <laughs> and Bernie Sanders has brought a very high percentage of them out, uh, and, and a lot of them have shown up in Philadelphia. So you may be right, but my guess would be that uh, the Democrats will do what they usually do, is unite against the evil opposition. Yeah, actually, I'm in heated agreement with everything Scott says on this. Uh, I think that um, they're going to calm down. They're going to get it out of their system. By the time people are listening to this uh, Powerline show edition, I think we will have had the roll call vote that will have allowed the Bernie people to cast their votes for Bernie. They'll blow off a lot more steam. We will have heard from Bill Clinton. Uh, Wednesday night, we will have heard from President Obama, I think both figures who are still popular uh, with most Democrats. They'll do a lot to unify the party, I think. Uh, And so, yeah, I think it probably is uh, too much to hope that they'll melt down in front of us. So that being the case, uh, let's assume that they don't achieve 100 percent unity, but maybe 90 percent unity. There's always, I think, going to be some uh, disaffected Bernieites. Uh, Assuming, though, that they basically do achieve that goal, uh, where does that leave us entering the uh, general election campaign? Well, we've seen these polls the last few days showing that uh, Donald Trump got a substantial bump out of the convention, even though the audience for his acceptance speech was somewhat smaller than previous uh, convention years. I'm not sure if that's a great surprise given the proliferation of media. I think conventions have been in a long-term secular decline in viewership. Uh, uh, but you know, I think on the, on the other hand, Hillary's got a ceiling. Uh, you know, she's well-known. I don't think she can – she's not an object of fascination the way Trump is for good or ill. I don't think she has a lot of upside. Uh, we'll see. She probably gets some convention bump. But gosh, I, I have to say that uh, while I remain not a fan of Trump – I don't say never Trump because Ronald Reagan used to say you should never say never, right? Uh, But uh, uh, I have been amused at headlines in the last 24 hours of Democrats in a near panic about the fact that Trump is showing so well. And then you have Michael Moore, of all people, predicting his five reasons why Trump is going to win. And it's not very often I can agree with the reasoning of Michael Moore, but this is one of those times. Well, I don't have five reasons why I think Trump is going to win, but I do think he will win, probably. Uh, I only have one reason, and that is that he gets to run against Hillary Clinton. I think that um, I think that Hillary is just an awful candidate. And I guess I could add that there are more reasons I could add, and, and, and maybe reason number two would be that even though Barack Obama is not personally terribly unpopular. Uh, he polls around 48, 51, you know, somewhere in there. But, of course, that the 51 is, is blown up by the fact that he gets about 97% of African Americans. Uh, so that's a little bit of a misleading number, I think. 
But I think maybe the more significant number is the right track, wrong track um, uh, polling. Only about a quarter of Americans uh, purport to believe that the country is on the right track when they talk to pollsters. I have to think the true number is probably less than that. I, you know, I, I, have, I have a feeling some of those people are are, are being a little bit Pollyanna-ish. And so I, the, the point, I guess, is uh, to the extent that voters are perceiving Hillary Clinton as a potential third term for Barack Obama – um, I don't think that a majority of voters are going to want another four years just like the last eight years. Well, you know, the, you stated one reason to be for Trump, which is that he's not Hillary. Uh, the case, the affirmative case for Trump uh, that's been made by uh, many of his strongest supporters is that he represents, uh, you know, we, the cliche is a change agent, but the bigger term is a disruptor, that he will go in and break China that very much needs breaking in Washington. It's one thing to win an election on that basis, and that makes some sense. But what happens on day two? It's not clear to me uh, you know, what plan he might have. And you could see it going very badly for Republicans if he wins. Uh, you know, it could be uh, you know, all downhill for Republicans from there on the off-year elections. Conversely, you know, Hillary Clinton, if she wins, because I think she has so few big ideas, but it's free college and build more roads and bridges, that's not something to really get the heart pounding fast. Uh, you know, she, I think, would have a miserable presidency, and it might be all upside for Republicans in the off-year elections of 2018 and so forth, and it might lead to the utter exhaustion of liberalism that I think is apparent to discerning viewers. Uh, but my guess is uh, gloomy Scott may have a different view of all this. Scott, how do you uh, size up things at this point? And even if Hillary wins, we could still snatch defeat from the jaws of defeat, Steve. Wins? Yeah, yeah, that's possible, but uh, but I think that's a good point. The uh, if Trump were to win, it seems to me like it would be kind of like a a, a revolutionary situation. The 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 opposition, you know, the Soros funded uh, rent a riot crowd would really be in, in go into high operation and uh, make things very difficult. Well, yeah. I mean, if you thought the Nixon years were difficult with all the left and the media establishment out to get him because of the war in Vietnam and other things, or even the Reagan years, it will be ten times worse with a President Trump, in part because you'll have a lot of the Republican establishment out against him. I mean, if Trump is elected, it's going to be the political equivalent of World War III in Washington. Well, maybe, but in my opinion, you should always want to win elections, and uh, I think it's always better to win than to lose. You know, for years, Republicans in Washington have been explaining to us why they can't do anything. Uh, we can't do anything because we've only got the House. Well, now we can't do anything because we've only got the House and the Senate. Well, you know, now we can't do anything. We've got to have the president. We've got to have all three, or else we're... Uh, hopeless, apparently. And um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily true, but, but it certainly is the is what's been happening. So, uh, yeah, I think we want a Republican president. I think we want a Republican Congress. Uh, I With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I think we want uh, Donald Trump, not Hillary Clinton, uh, making judicial appointments. Uh, I think we want him making foreign policy decisions. 
I mean, one of the striking things to me about the DNC speeches last night was that not a single speaker ever mentioned foreign policy. They never mentioned terrorism or any other aspect of foreign policy. I mean, I just find that stunning. Uh, so I, mean, I think there are a lot of important reasons why uh, we should want a Trump administration rather than a Clinton administration, if, even if we assume uh, that, that Trump is uh, not exactly ready for prime time. <laughs> right. Well, surely we're going to have a lot to say about this between now and November as the debates unfold and other things happen. But I think shouldn't we spend at least a couple of minutes mocking Scott for his recent visit to the spa? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you're, gosh, Scott, you're looking gaunt and thin and healthy and like you've been eating vegan for the last uh, two months or something. So tell us about uh, your most recent health excursion. Steve, it was as much work as play. I, I was at the Trump Resort in Miami and, and seeing how those operations run and testing out the complete Trump line of hair care and soap products. So, uh, and, and as it, made in Malaysia, <laughs> they were made in Canada, as a matter of fact, John, not in the United States. Yeah, uh, but if you know when when Trump gets in, he's going to do something about NAFTA. So I'm a little bit concerned about that. The, the Trump line of products there as featured at the Trump National Doral. And, and, and what, what's the place like? Is it gaudy in ways that you associate with the Trump name, or was it normal? Um, it was, I would say, uh, towards gaudy in the way that you associate with the Trump name, but it was legitimately first class, in my opinion. I was so happy being there, um, and the grounds are spectacular. I just, you know, it, it's in the... Part of Miami, 10 minutes from the airport, but it's a 600-acre golf course and tennis courts. Uh, and with, um, you know, I was at this Pritikin Diet program, which has its own building and uh, chefs and, and, and dining schedule and so on. Just a great place uh, to suffer in silence. <laughs> was, was, the setting was perfect. It was a, you know, deluxe resort. Um, I was really impressed with the operation. A deluxe resort and you can't eat meat or drink. And uh, it's antithetical to the whole point of a deluxe resort. Not even Trump steaks are served, apparently. I was just going to add that uh, the, the political aspect was amplified by the, my classmate, Charles Rangel, uh, representing <laughs> in his uh, 23rd term, representing the, the 13th District of New York, uh, legendary congressman. I think believe this is his last term. And I believe this was his 12th time going through the, the Pritikin program. There are a lot of repeat uh, attendees, so that was interesting, too. And um, he turned out to be a gregarious fellow, but um, uh, also scheduled to return, I believe, in January when his term is up. Oh, but you got to hand it to him. He's, what, 80-something? I believe he's 86. So uh, he was... Uh, participating in the rigorous in the morning after breakfast, they they assign us ninety minutes of workouts, and I, and Charlie and I were in that class together too. Um, and he he did his thing, uh, you know, with full heart during the exercise regime. So I was impressed in that respect. <laughs> All right. Well, Steve, uh, who is our interview this week? Well, I was fortunate enough on a recent trip to Washington to get to sit down and spend some time face to face with Yuval Levin. Uh, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, you've always one of the really important young intellectual leaders of the conservative movement. You know, he has a PhD from the University of Chicago at the, the um, Committee on Social Thought. Uh, he's the author of several fine books, including his first book about Tom Paine and Edmund Burke that's quite readable. He has a brand new book out that's quite important called The Fractured Republic, 
Renewing America's Social Contract in the Age of Individualism. I know Paul Mirengoff has been reading it and liking it and promises a print review, but I'm going to scoop him a little bit with this conversation with Yuval, who we'll bring up right now. Yuval Levin, thanks for joining us on Powerline, and congratulations on your book, Our Fractured Republic. Uh, I want to start uh, uh, with a challenge of sorts. You know, books have long lead times, and obviously you finished this book many months ago and, of course, worked on it and thought about it for years, I suppose. Uh, Would you write it any differently or would you make some changes had you known that Donald Trump would be the Republican nominee in 2016? Yeah, boy, it's a great question. I I think in some ways it would have probably been a more downcast and depressed book uh, (laughs) just because that's my mood um, after this primary season. In some respects, uh, the Trump phenomenon confirmed some of what's in the book. The book argues that our politics has become detached from uh, the real challenges America faces in the 21st century and that that detachment creates enormous frustration. I think we see both the detachment and the frustration on display in the Trump phenomenon. So it would have offered more evidence in that respect, but certainly it also would have changed my sense of the state and the health of, uh, of conservatism and of our politics in general. So it would have been nice to know. <laughs> right. Uh, one of your leading themes in the book, uh, right in the first pages, is that both parties, both sides, left and right, are caught in – you don't use the word nostalgia trap, but nostalgia is the, right. the key term that you use. Um, um, say a little bit more about that and describe the particular forms of nostalgia you see on left and right. Yeah, I think when you when you really listen to how our politicians talk to the public about the country's problems, it's very striking how often and how quickly – they resort to this specter of what America used to be, the sense that the country is not what it used to be, is really the defining uh, characteristic of American political life now. And often what they refer to is a kind of ideal of mid-century America, that time when you could just go down to the to, to downtown and get a factory job and keep it for life and families were strong. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that image, of course. It's not They're not making it up, but the degree to which it, it – it commands our sense of ourselves, our understanding of what America is or should be, is vastly excessive. It keeps us from seeing, for one thing, that mid-century America was a very unusual version of America. It was extremely cohesive and unified after a war and the Depression. Americans had enormous faith in large institutions, which is very unusual for Americans. And we're actually back to something more like a normal uh, American attitude about public life and politics now, but it's very hard for us to deal with, having been through that America. And a lot of our baby boomer leaders in particular miss the America of their youth to a degree that keeps them from seeing what's wrong with the 21st century. And that's certainly true on the right and the left. Well, and one important point which you bring out in your book is, and a lot of people have pointed this out, is that the economy that people speak of, of the old – unskilled person could get a well-paying job for life at an auto plant or something like that, that really existed at a rare moment of when the American economy in world terms was a monopoly economy, right? We didn't really have much foreign yeah. competition because the rest of the world was nearly destroyed. It was a very unusual moment when there was enormous demand around the world, but there was not a lot of supply around the right. world. And there's no way that could have lasted. So the United States came out of the Second World War uh, among the developed economies, really only the U.S. and Canada went through the war without utterly decimating their capacity for production. And so they both had a great time for a little while after the war. There was, as I said, demand for their products, but uh, there were not a lot of competitors. 
Obviously, that couldn't have lasted, and it didn't last. And so our, our economy returned to the need for a kind of specialization, and it's become more specialized in higher skill work over time. So it's certainly true. It's become harder to get a job in America without uh, a lot of skills in education. But there's no way to return to that right. economic reality uh, you know, without another horrendous world war, to, <laughs> at least. Yeah, let's not do that. that, yeah. that uh, I, I'm against that. <laughs> um, uh, uh, talk a bit uh, about what are some of the way uh, – you, you're conservative and you, you start the book by saying I'm a conservative, but then you go on to say we need to engage in some self-criticism. Mm -hmm. What are some of your criticisms of the way conservative nostalgia has detached – uh, conservatives and or Republicans from facing yeah. squarely what's going on? I think that we on the right have fallen into a, a mode of speaking that consists of the ends of Ronald Reagan's sentences. And ah, yeah. we don't think enough of the beginnings, which were, here are the problems we have, here are our enduring principles, and therefore here is my agenda. What we've been left with since the 1990s or so is just that agenda, which was, uh, again, a function of applying what should be enduring conservative and American principles to a particular set of circumstances. The circumstances have changed. Those principles have not changed. And the question for us now is how do we apply those enduring principles, constitutionalism, a, a, a sense, a vision of society that's not government-centered but that's centered around communities and, uh, and individuals, uh, to contemporary problems. And so we need a much better grasp of those contemporary problems. I think one of the things you saw, one of the more depressing elements of this this election year has been that the, the strongest response to Donald Trump came from Ted Cruz. And Ted Cruz went around the country basically saying, Trump is not a conservative. And voters listened to him and said, okay. So what? what? Right. right. Yeah. And it just wasn't enough. It isn't enough. We use conservative as a kind of magic incantation, but we have to explain to the public, including to Republican voters, what that means and why it matters and why it should appeal to them, and we just don't do enough of it. Right. You, you know, it's, it's a, maybe not a small point, but, of course, in my long studies of Reagan, if you notice his public speaking, he seldom used the word conservative mm -hmm. to a general audience. He yeah. would when speaking to the conservative political action conference, but not to a general audience of, uh, of a cross-section of citizens. And that was on purpose, I think. Yeah, I, I think you have to talk to voters in terms of problems and solutions. Right. In thinking of what those solutions ought to be, you certainly need to be informed by American principles, by conservative principles. But to talk to the public, you have to explain why what you're offering right. should be appealing. Now, can you give a couple of, of uh, specific examples of uh, you know, new ways to adapt or put principles into practice? So I, I think a lot of what's changed in American life since the times that we're so nostalgic for, whether it's the early 80s or whether it's the 50s and early 60s, a lot of what has changed is a kind of fragmentation. It's why the book is called The Fractured Republic. That very cohesive America has fragmented and broken down. Now, some of this is good and some of it is bad. It's liberalization and diversity. It's also uh, fragmentation and fracture and disunity. In thinking about what public policy should look like in this 21st century America, I think first and foremost we have to understand that it needs to be decentralized, that it needs to be bottom-up. It's actually why I think this is a promising moment for conservatives because, in fact, we're much better situated than the left to talk to America in terms of <clears throat> the ways that problems are solved in contemporary American life, which is by giving people an enormous number of options and letting mm -hmm. their choices improve the kinds of systems that uh, make up our national life. That's not what the left is offering. The left is offering, here's just the right MIT professor, and he's going to figure <laughs> out health care. The right is saying, here are a lot of options. Here are some resources for people who are not capable of, uh, who, who don't have enough uh, to, to resources to make those choices. 
And you make choices, and we're going to see how we improve healthcare. I think that approach, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in education, whether it's in uh, welfare, is the way to solve problems in the 21st century. Some of that are things that conservatives have been saying for a long time. It's school choice. It's, it's an approach to welfare reform that's, that's been our way of thinking about it for at least 25 years. Some of it is new. I think thinking about higher education in terms of breaking up the model and opening up new options uh, w- would, be a, w- would be new for a lot of Americans. I think we have a lot of new things to say uh, about what, what devolution of power would look like in contemporary America, what, what putting more power at the level of the community would do for welfare, say. Right. Um, but I think you have to start with something conservatives don't do, which is approach the public and say, how do we solve problems? What works? Do we solve problems by centralizing power and making sure that just the right answer is made universal? Do we solve problems by giving you choices and letting you show us how problems ought to be solved? I don't think 21st century Americans would have a lot of would, – would have a hard time answering that question, and the answer would be much more friendly to conservative ideas than liberal ones. Right. Uh, what about the uh, – what's the – in your mind, a, a sensible conservative perspective on the income inequality problem? I mean, it, it seems to me that liberals have a point that the income gains have been uh, disproportionately captured by highest income groups, unlike 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I talk about this a lot in the book, and I, I think that um, inequality is a symptom, not a cause. And so liberals, the key mistake they make is in talking about inequality itself as the problem to solve, rather than seeing inequality as a facet of a larger set of polarizations in our national life that result from the kind of fragmentation that's really defined American life uh, in recent decades. I think that the way to approach what is actually – what troubles people about inequality is to think in terms of mobility, is to think in terms of how to open up opportunities. And that does mean thinking somewhat differently about education where especially higher ed, for example, which we think of as a path to upward mobility, has actually become a bottleneck. It's become a way of preventing people from rising. And it is really a place where giving people more options, more choices would make a difference. So – Upward mobility is one way of thinking about it. Helping people who are stuck in entrenched poverty is another. And so welfare reform that, that enables solutions that exist at the level of the community to have the kinds of resources they need to make a difference would help a lot. Paul Ryan's been talking a lot about this. Right. Mike Lee talks about this a lot. Um, you know, so it, it, it seems to me that this has to be understood as, as part and parcel of the larger approach to changing how we think about public policy from a great society approach that was suited for mid-century America to a conservative way of thinking about the 21st century America's problems. Right. And so I, I think you... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get at income inequality by addressing those deeper problems. You know, I, I would put it this way. Poverty is a huge social problem. Wealth is not a huge social problem. And so to talk about inequality confuses that and, and treats wealth as though it were the problem. Right. 
But yeah, I mean, liberals say, I mean, what they always say is inequality, therefore let us raise taxes, which does what exactly? It's never right. clear to me how that solves anything. Exactly. Uh, one more question about the right before I ask you about the nostalgia of the left, uh, although this is a good transitional way to do it. You know, I asked Rui Teixeira once at the Center for American Progress. You know, he's a person of the left, a thinking person. I asked him once, what are conservatives right about? And he paused for a minute and said, oh, it's definitely the family. Says you know, we were really indifferent, especially back in the '60s and '70s, about the importance of intact families. And I know you discuss it in the book quite a bit. That that's really maybe you know a central aspect of so many of the problems we're worried about. But hard for the federal government to reach that with federal style policy. Yeah. So maybe talk about some ways that you uh, about decentralization or subsidiarity. You use that right. Catholic word, yeah. or however way you want about about how we get at that problem. Yeah, I, 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 I think the problem of the family, the collapse of the family, is at the core of just about all of what we think of as our social and economic problems. And it is, the, it is a kind of problem that can't be readily addressed by public policy. It's just not going to work that way. Um, I think, first of all, the federal government could do less harm. Um, it does an awful lot of harm at the moment. On the one hand, by by taking over some of the functions that families ought to perform and so ah. making them less necessary and therefore making them less functional. And on the other hand, by making it, un, making it needlessly difficult uh, by burdening families through various kinds of marriage penalties, through right. child penalties and the, uh, uh, here and there, these are the, changing that is not going to solve the problem, and I wouldn't want to suggest that it would. I think it's very important for the government not to needlessly burden families. But at the end of the day... The, the dysfunction that we find in American family structure has to do with decisions that people make themselves. And so the question is, how do you reshape people's decision-making? That can only happen at the community level. I don't think that the kinds of economic incentives that people see out of the corner of their eye, so it, the, 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 the tax law changes a little bit or welfare changes a little bit, ultimately when you're facing a decision, do I stay with the mother of my child, you're not making that decision by looking out of the corner of your eye at those economic incentives. You're making that decision by saying, how do people that I respect in this, who are in this position make a decision? Or what would be acceptable in my community? Or what's the normal thing, what's the right thing to do in this situation? I think that means empowering institutions with moral authority, empowering institutions with a kind of normative authority in communities, and letting them play some role in the welfare system or letting them play some role in the implementation of public policy. This gets very complicated, and it can easily fall into a kind of faith-based initiatives approach that I do not think is a good idea. But allowing public policy to flow from the bottom up more than the top down would make some difference. Right. Uh, So let's uh, shift gears and talk a bit about what what are some ways that the nostalgia – or what's the form of the nostalgia of the left that detaches them from – what's important and what's, what's really going on. Yeah, you know, if you let a liberal talk about economics for a while, and it's all they want to talk about, or at least <laughs> it seems to be, really they care about the social issues more. We see that in the last few years. But right. when they talk about public policy, um, they begin by saying the American economy has been horrendous for the middle class for the last 40 years. And then they go on and talk about things they want to do. But you have to stop them right there and say, hang on just a minute. The American economy has been horrendous for the middle class for the last 40 years? No. That's absolutely insane. Their nostalgia is a nostalgia for pre-1970s economic arrangements, which involved big government, big labor, big business working together in a kind of corporatist enterprise to manage the country. Um, And 
in that mid-century moment when America had all the advantages that it had at that time and the incredible faith in institutions, that did seem like a workable and successful uh, way to address problems. I think we have learned that it isn't, and we also have changed in ways that make it less likely to work. But then- can, I, can I just interrupt for a second to say that I find this highly ironic in this sense. I mean, I think you probably know, and I've certainly read the history of this, the early 60s liberals, their complaint about the 1950s, which Paul Krugman now calls a golden age, exactly. is that it was slow and sluggish and conformist. And exactly. what was John F. Kennedy's slogan? Let's get the country moving again. And now that liberals look back on that a next generation as a golden age, to me is uh, the, you know, the height of irony and maybe Absolutely. hypocrisy. You anyway, know, Paul Krugman wrote a book called The Conscience of a Liberal, right. which is worth reading. It's an interesting book. It starts with a chapter that was called The Way We Were, right. and he, he makes exactly this point. He says, when I was young, I thought America was horrible. I, thought that I, I fought against the war in Cambodia, and I went door-to-door for Democratic politicians. I now look back at that time, and I understand that it was a golden age. I mean, he literally says this, and that's, that's the nostalgia I'm talking about. It's all over everything that Hillary Clinton says. It's just this sense that we got it right once. We were well on our way to, to European-style social democracy. And we gave it up because these crazy market fanatics came in and destroyed everything. Right. And so everywhere you look in liberal economic policy, there is this desire to go back to that pre-1970s way of doing things. Right. So uh, I think last question here. Uh, you just We start off by saying that if I write the book now, I'd be maybe even gloomier. So I almost hesitate to ask this, but uh, are you optimistic? I mean, uh, I know you you the kind of person who would look beyond just a particular election cycle. Or in what ways are you optimistic, or where does the balance come out? Yeah, I'm not gloomy. I'm I'm not optimistic. I, I, I take optimist to be an insult. I, I, <laughs> I think you know, an optimist just expects good things to happen, and that's just silly. But I'm hopeful, and the difference to me between between optimistic and hopeful is that being hopeful means that you believe the resources are there to address the problems we have. And I absolutely believe that. I think that living in America, it's almost irresponsible not to be hopeful. There's nowhere you'd rather be in the world, and really there's no other time you'd rather be living in. Uh, I do think we have a lot of the resources we need to address the problems we have. I think a lot of the gloom we have is actually a function of our nostalgia. It's like our entire culture thinks of itself as a baby boomer, and so it thinks that it's getting old and losing everything and <laughs> you know sees death around the corner. Our culture is not, in fact, a baby boomer. Our country is not, in fact, a baby boomer. The boomers are retiring. It's wonderful. I wish them a long and, 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 and healthy and happy retirement. But we are struggling to come to terms with what it means to be a post-baby boomer America. I do think that we have a lot of resources to work with on that front. I think there's a lot in modern America that will enable us to solve the problems we have. I also think on the right, we have a younger generation of leaders who are very impressive um, and in a wide variety of ways. So we will have a lot to choose from. This election cycle, I'm not hopeful about. Uh, you know, we're going to have two 70-year-olds yelling at each other about how to go backward. And that's not what America needs in the 21st century. But beyond it, if you think about the resources we have, I am hopeful. And I'm hopeful for conservatives. I'm hopeful for the country. Well, on that note, you've all then. Thanks very much for joining us at Powerline. Thank you. Powerline is a production of PowerlineBlog.com. John Hinderocker, Scott Johnson, Paul Mirndoff, Stephen Hayward, Joseph Melchow, and produced by Madison McQueen in association with Ricochet.com. Oh.